From epic tales of mystery and magic to accounts of battle and empire. From the verses of ancient poets to the masterpieces of our times. A light on literature brings to life China's literary heritage and a look at the world in a new light. Hi, I'm Huang Rei. Today on A Light on Literature, we conclude our presentation of the book Tides from the West, a Chinese autobiography written by Chang Menglin. Chang Menglin was a well-respected Chinese educator. In today's episode, Tang Daming narrates the second part of Chapter 34, titled "Modern Civilization." Enjoy. Must China fall in line with the rest of the world? If there should be another war, as the world so much fears, it seems probable that it will start again, like the First World War in Eastern and Middle Europe, or like the recent cataclysm in the Chinese three eastern provinces known as Manchuria. The people of Middle Europe want Lebensraum elsewhere. While as to Manchuria, outside peoples want to find their Lebensraum there. The former, being a densely populated area, tends to spill its troubles, while the latter, a vast vacuum, sucks trouble in. Either is a potential source of war, in which, if it comes, the whole world must again be involved to its incalculable disaster. In safeguarding the powder magazines of the East. Responsibility will inevitably rest upon the shoulders of China. Therefore, the political, social, economic, and industrial development of China during the next twenty or thirty years will have a determining effect upon the peace situation of the world. A strong and prosperous China, cooperating with the major powers of the West, could eliminate the danger to a very great extent, if not entirely. It is to the mutual interest of the Allied powers and of world peace in general that the Western powers should cooperate with China, say for a period of 50 years, in the development of her natural resources, and for the coming 20 years, perhaps in the work of her economic and social rehabilitation. Before Western influence made inroads into China. Her troubles for many centuries had come solely from Manchuria and the neighboring region known as Mongolia. When Japan became a world power after the Sino-Japanese War, she contended with Tsarist Russia for control over that vast territory, a conflict which culminated in the Russo-Japanese War. Japan schemed to use that part of China as a stepping stone to control of the whole country led to the Mukden incident. If history since the downfall of the Tangs has taught us anything, we may be reasonably sure that the three eastern provinces will still be a trouble center for China and a cause of worry to the world until China herself is strong and prosperous, and the vast vacuum of Manchuria is filled. 
In building up a modern democracy and industries, China needs time and favorable conditions for experiment. These conditions are peace and security. China will have security only when Manchuria becomes a center of peace. We shall have to start anew in creating our future by making that vast territory a focus of peace instead of war. In that important work, I hope the world, especially America, Britain, and Soviet Russia, will cooperate with China. In 1921, I was elected an unofficial observer to the Washington Conference by the Chamber of Commerce and Educational Associations in Shanghai, and supported by Dr. Sun Yat-sen's nationalist government in Guangzhou. In the following year, 1922, I went to Europe for a visit to the source of modern civilization. It was very soon after the First World War. One could see that every country in Europe was busy planning post-war rehabilitation, and the major victorious powers were occupied in trying to make peace more enduring. America, unwilling to pull European chestnuts out of the fire, had withdrawn from that much troubled continent and summoned the Washington Conference, at which the Nine Power Treaty was penned, the Anglo-Japanese alliance superseded. And the Shandong question settled. This, to save Japan's face, was negotiated outside the conference. The twenty-one demands superseded by the new treaty were thus unostentatiously sent to the grave. Qingdao, a seaport in the peninsula of Shandong, had been awarded to Japan at Versailles, and the complications which grew out of the award were known as the Shandong question. Indignation at this move gave rise in China to the student movement, which had such far-reaching repercussions in Sino-Japanese relations, as well in political and cultural developments in China during the following twenty years. In America, it troubled public men who had sympathy for China and became a knotty political problem. Both the Republican and Democratic parties more or less committed themselves to right the wrongs done to China by the ill-fated Versailles Treaty. Thus, while America withdrew her fingers from Europe, she dipped them deep into Pacific waters. The result, twenty years later, was Pearl Harbor. Without the active participation of America in the League of Nations, of which she was the author. With a defensive psychology on the part of France, whose only desire was to avoid trouble, and with Britain's main interest focused on maintaining the balance of power on the continent, the League became toothless. It barked a lot, but never meant to bite. Yet any problem that member nations could not handle among themselves was handed over to the League. So it became a dumping ground for international difficulties. When China was unable to meet her difficulties vis-à-vis -vis Manchurian problems, she too dumped them on the League, of which Japan was a member. In the case of the Mukden incident, France was not interested. Britain was concerned only so far as the balance of power in the Far East was involved, but she was afraid of being drawn in. The League, therefore, had scarcely even the nerve to bark at Japan. As few mild yelps might indeed be construed as connivance. 
The League, however, made an invaluable contribution to our experience. Learning from its failures, the world may profit in planning the coming peace. Born of American idealism, it died of conflicting interests and the ambitions of member nations, especially the major powers. So matters developed in the course of some twenty years after the Versailles Treaty. The seeds of war sown at Versailles grew in every corner of the world like weeds, which eventually caught fire and set the whole world aflame. But politics are but a passing show, destined soon to vanish into history. What will always remain is the fundamental problem of culture. It is undeniable that Europe has produced modern science and organized democracy, which have brought to mankind more blessings than evils. Germany appeared to me a country of telescopes, microscopes, and test tubes. Her inventions and discoveries multiplied by leaps and bounds. In Shanghai, foreign manufacturers of superlative quality became known as Jiaminghuo or German goods. The Germans were masters of material things, but fell short in human relations. This, as I see it, is why they often got into trouble in dealing with other nations. In the broader realm of human activities, the Germans often failed to grasp the essentials or shortcomings of human nature. They had highly developed special senses in which other nations did not excel, but they were short of common sense. Their special endowments gave them the scientific thoroughness which has made so many special contributions to the world, and their lack of common sense. Brought misery alike to their own country and to others. The British were just the opposite; they were a nation of common sense and masters of human relations. Their views on world affairs and policies relative to them were flexible and adaptable. They never let the cord stretch to the point of breaking. If a strong force pulled at the other end of the rope. The British would loosen it a little to save it from snapping. If the other side was weaker, they would keep on drawing the cord to themselves until it slipped from their opponent's hands. But the British would never let go their end of the rope; they would stick to the last, irrespective of consequences. In relations with other countries and in colonial policies, this trait of the British people was seen everywhere. Hand in hand with flexibility and adaptability, went such other British traits as tolerance, moderation, considerateness, fair play, and an attitude of compromise. They never went to extremes in their views, and were always trying to understand other people's view in order either to bring themselves to it or to bring others to their own. They loved freedom of speech and thought. Disliked hard and fast rules, which might prove unadjustable to varying conditions. The British are reserved to the point of brutal coolness, a trait disliked by other peoples and often the cause of suspicion. It has lost the British many a friend among other nations. But when you know them better, or rather when they know you better, you want to make friends with them. Some or all of these traits together made English democracy possible. For democracy is not something abstract, something that is dropped from the sky. 
It consists of the best traits there are in the people who have succeeded in it. If you run through the constitutional history of England, you will find that intolerance, persecutions, corruption, and cruelties fill its pages. Quite a number of lives, including that of a king, have been sacrificed to democracy. The experience of English democracy is worth our serious study. One fact, however, we must bear in mind: that English democracy grew fast after the unification of the United Kingdom, and American democracy too developed by leaps and bounds only after the Civil War. History teaches us that unification and security must go hand in hand to make an organized democracy. For England was lucky in that her islands were small and protected by the sea. In the old days, invasion was not easy, so the English enjoyed security and therefore had plenty of time for trial and error. Their national existence was not endangered by foreign invasion during the period of incubation and experiment. A similar situation existed in America. The North American continent is itself a gigantic island. The seas around it preventing any formidable invasion. The early colonists from England brought with them seeds of the love of freedom, which grew into a great tree of liberty, sheltered from the axe of foreign invaders. In the course of a century or so, the democracy of America took firm root. Not only was experiment freely made in human relations, but also in things material. By which I mean scientific research. While American democracy grew out of the English model, American science owed a great debt to the Germans. The American system of higher education is a combination of the English college and the German university. The American academic dress is, so to speak, an English gown with a German cap. In the American colleges. Boys and girls lived in a spirit of comradeship and free association, and secured a liberal foundation of learning. Knowledge was not strictly regimented; human relations were learned through free mingling of the student body. The sight of the younger generation was not simply narrowed into telescopes, microscopes, or test tubes. A general culture was furnished to all those who care to absorb it. In the university proper or the graduate school, American students were taught methods of research. German thoroughness was admired and encouraged, but its full realization had yet to be achieved at the time of my college days. During the First World War, the five colors of the former Chinese flag—red, yellow, blue, white, and black—were reduced to two: black and white. The reason was that German dyes were no longer available in China on account of the war. An American chemist in New York told me that in Germany several specialists worked on one color, whereas in America one chemist dealt with many colors. This was some twenty years ago. Conditions have changed by now. Since Americans have acquired so much of the German thoroughness during the last two or three decades. Thus, on the American side of the water, English democracy and German science have gone hand in hand. With her rich natural resources, 
her power of organization and love of great projects, America may now easily be ranked as first of the democracies of the world. In days of old, when the West fought for colonial empire in the East, all the important Western powers except America at various times wronged China. Even Portugal bit off a tiny piece of land called Macau in the province of Guangdong. The only thing America got from China was extraterritoriality, but what she has done for China is far more and will be remembered for generations to come. As everybody knows this, I need not elaborate here. Now, both America and Britain have abolished that system, and Britain has returned all the settlements which were an anachronism, though Hong Kong remains in British hands. In spite of terrible wars all over the world, much encouraging light has shone through the international clouds. Let us hope that with victory achieved, it may grow into brilliant sunshine in a cloudless sky. America has definitely joined the coming international peace organization. She has fought the war. She is to fight for an enduring peace. A new epoch in history is in the making. The combined resources of America, Britain, Soviet Russia, and China are so great that if they desire peace with an effective world organization backed up by an international defense force to enforce it, peace will indeed be enduring. For China's part, she will have to redouble her effort of reconstruction and regeneration for the coming 20 or probably 30 years. This will be a critical period for China. Success depends upon foresight and leadership, and the extent to which our allies will cooperate. The extent to which cooperation is given will also depend upon our political developments and how sound a policy we adopt regarding international investments. Our difficulties are enhanced by the devastations of war and wanton destruction in all the once prosperous provinces, where the heel of the enemy has trodden. On the other hand, China has a double duty to perform. First, it is her duty to herself to become strong and prosperous. Second, it is her duty to the world to help make world peace secure. In the political philosophy of the Confucian school, peace for the world is the ultimate aim. On the basis of the Confucian philosophy, Dr. Sun Yat-sen aimed at world peace in his three principles of the people. If we can bridge over this critical period of 20 or 30 years, the momentum thus gathered will carry reforms and reconstruction forward, ever increasing and ever widening into a glorious future in which China will be in the position to help the world in assuring a more permanent peace. From the West, China has still much to learn. Ever since the downfall of the great dynasty of the Tangs, she has been overrun from time to time by peoples from the immense outlying territories of Asia. The decline of Chinese civilization after the fall of that dynasty was due to the invasion of barbarians, who at intermittent periods devastated the country and turned it into a stretch of ruins. The successive invasions, together with famine, disease, and internal dissensions, 
sapped the energy of the Chinese people and thus weakened their creative power. When Western influence began to come into China, therefore, she met it with her civilization at the lowest ebb. People in China now talk of the Tang civilization as if in hopes of restoring the glories of that era. It is a good thing, so far as we can, to draw inspiration from the Tangs and be stimulated by their more humanistic civilization as contrasted with the ascetic type of the later songs. But for China to go back to this brilliant period of her history is next to impossible. For centuries, we have tried to recover our past glories, yet our civilization slid progressively downward in steady decline. In making the peace, China's part will be by no means small. Throughout her history, she has had many wars, but they have been wars more in the nature of internal revolution than external aggression. China has been oppressed much more than oppressing. Ever since the time of the first emperor of the Qin dynasty who built the Great Wall, symbol of a defensive mentality, China has wished to be let alone. Confucius's teaching of proper human relations and world peace and the democratic ideas of Mencius will fit China to be a modern democratic state which wishes to do no wrong to other peoples. What China must emphasize after the war is modern science with its applications to means of production, and democracy in its organized form, with emphasis upon unification of the country. Science and democracy, twin instruments of a progressive modern state, is the key to power, prosperity, and a more lasting peace. With the practical wisdom of her people, in its special emphasis on human relations and democratic ways of living and thinking, China has the solid foundation for a modern democracy. As we have seen, her democracy is loosely organized. Her intense love of individual liberty has not kept step with modern social consciousness. Strong family ties have been partly responsible for retarding the organization of individuals into a broader society, but these ties are rapidly loosening. Modern institutions have appeared in the larger cities, and further industrialization will mean a further loosening of family bonds and socialization of individuals. With the assimilating power of Chinese civilization. The Western contribution of science will be absorbed in due course of time, and with the rich natural resources of the country and high intelligence of her people, the integration of science into her life will open up wonderful opportunities in the future. Chinese morals and arts will prosper in the material wealth thus developed, while Chinese thought. And the rich store of literature and philosophy will tend to be clarified and systematized by modern logical and scientific ways of thinking. On this new basis of initial peace and prosperity, China will be in the position to build up a new defense force to preserve and sustain peace. No country would be a worthy partner for peace that was not a worthy partner for war. 
The attention of the world has already been drawn to China by the contribution she has made to the world in a war of resistance for eight long years. In spite of weaknesses and shortcomings in some aspects of her national life during the war, modern science, with special reference to inventions and industry, will fuse with China's rich treasures of art and sound morals. A new civilization is in the making. Perhaps it too can contribute to the world's progress. And that concludes the book "Tides from the West," a Chinese autobiography written by Chang Menglin, read by Tang Daming, and published by the Foreign Language Teaching and Research Press. Thank you for joining us on this literary journey. I'm Huang Rei. See you next time. <laughs>